Let's go. Hello, and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design. Is it Sustain Our Design? No, it's Sustain Open Source Design. Yes, yes. Sustain Open Source Design. SOS. <laughs> what are you <laughs> Hello and welcome to Sustain Open Source Design, SOS Design, the podcast we talk about the confluence of open source and design and whatever the heck that means. Very excited to talk to our guest today. Before we introduce him, I want to make sure that you know who the other voices are that you may hear on this podcast. I am, of course, Richard Littauer. Hello, everyone. And we also have on this podcast, Victory Brown. Victory, how are you doing? Hi, Richard. I'm good. Nice to be here. Hi, everyone. Nice to have you. Welcome. And we have Django Scadupa. Django, how are you doing? I'm doing quite well. How's everyone else? Good. Still envious of your ring light. One day I too will get one. Our guest today is also calling from a van-like thing from a mobile home, which is cool because I am. So that's sweet. This is a nomadic podcast. Calling from Wichita. When I asked him for what his role is, they wanted, you know, what do you actually say do here? He just said, well, pick a thing. So it's going to be a very fun and I'm guessing all over the board podcast about design, open source and the confluence of things. Of course, I'm talking about Jason Van Gomster. Jason, how are you doing today? I think I'm holding together rather well. That's a start. That's a start, man. That's good. <laughs> it's great to have you on the podcast. Now, Jason is an open source creative. And yes, I am reading from the bio right here. So very nearly everything that he produces, stories, animation, designs, videos, podcasts, are all made using free and open source tools uh, from applications all the way down to the OS. He's run a small animation studio, written Blender for Dummies, now in his fourth edition, co-authored GIMP Bible, and helped fight bad guys with art by designing anti-counterfeit technology for currency. Most recently, he's been helping studios and toolmakers integrate Blender into larger production pipelines as the lead of CG Cookies consulting form, Orange Turban. He does all this while living and traveling full-time in a motorhome with his wife, two kids, and 90-pound dog, all of whom are currently looking over his shoulder and staring at us for this entire podcast. Okay, that's <laughs> not true, but let's pretend. So, Jason, that sounds like an illustrious and illustrated life. Obviously, I have to go to the first question, which is, why would you produce anti-counterfeiting technology instead of counterfeiting money and becoming a millionaire? How does that happen? <laughs> the short backstory on that is that is what I end up doing is I animate and it shows up on paper money and it prevents people from copying it. It is the weirdest and coolest application of animation I have ever been involved with. And it's an interesting field in general because a lot of people who got into currency design came by way, we'll say paper design, traditional art, painting, print, that sort of thing. I think only within maybe the last five years has that industry realized that they're actually user interface designers. It is the oldest user interface in existence, really. So being able to think kinetically, thinking about things in terms of how it's actually being used and therefore being validated and verified. That, in addition to this, how cool the technology is and the fact that no one else can actually play in the same sandbox because there are tools that no one else has access to except for when you're building them yourself. Well, especially because you're building them yourself. That is fascinating. I've never thought of money as, of course, being designed. Of course, it is totally designed. And catch me if you can, should have taught me that, if nothing else. So tell me about the free and open source tools that are used in currency design. So I guess you're using your animation tools because you're a member of GIMP. You've helped found GIMP. What's going on with that one? 
<laughs> as far as GIMP goes, I'm just a longtime user of it. I use cool. it for, okay. I've been using free and open source tools since the late 90s. Holy mackerel, that's a long time ago. But yeah, I've been using them for that sort of thing. I'm more involved with the Blender community. And really, that's the tool that gets used more frequently for this sort of thing because you're visualizing things that are animated in kinetic and need to be viewed in the round. So 3D's technology and 3D pipelines tend to be more commonly used. Tell me about Blender and the Blender community because I'm not too familiar with it and some of our listeners may not be as well. Okay, so Blender has a very special place in my heart. I would also, I would refer to it as one of the first crowdfunding stories. And it, I believe is one of the first applications that was ever liberated by its community. So Blender originally started as an in-house tool by a Dutch production company for animation, television production, that kind of thing. And it got usable enough and it's got spun off to be sold by another company, by its own company called Not A Number. And this was early 2000s, late 90s, and it got fairly popular and got a really good buzz to it. But also, if you don't recall, the late 90s, early 2000s happened to be that dot kaboom thing. So they, not a number, went bankrupt. At that point in time, Blender probably had maybe 250,000 users, not large by then or now standards, really, but it's a, it's a sizable number. And so the original developer of Blender, he went to the holding company and said, look, if we can raise 100,000 euro, then we'll release Blender under... GPL and it'll be open source and we'll go from there. They expected it would take six months to a year to raise that money. The community raised it in seven weeks. And from wow. there, yeah, from there, it got some new features like undo, which we did that. <laughs> and really its development process has really been a model for a lot of other applications ever since that point, because one, it's always had a connection between the developers and artists. They try to keep them in the same room. So when an artist needs something, there's a developer there to provide it. They've actually built whole open projects around that whole philosophy. And you'll see other tools like Krita is starting to adopt a lot of the same sort of things because it just works. And because of that unique history, the Blender community, even new folks who have sort of come to it recently, they feel a level of ownership for this application that you normally wouldn't feel. And so... You do tend to have some heated passions when it comes to that. Love it. I could hear the passion in your voice. And it's actually making me wonder about the community for Blender and other people we've had on this podcast for Figma and the like, where you end up with these communities of designers who are also coders in a way. And I'm curious how you see yourself in that continuum. Well, so the first part of that is absolutely. I mean, I would say just talking to the Blender developers that I have over the years, I would say more than half of them started as artists or designers that needed a feature that wasn't there and they had to figure out how to code it and add that feature that they needed. That's, I would say the majority of Blender developers fall into that category. Even the ones that are core developers now, they weren't originally developers. They were artists and designers that were trying to make things work for them. And I fit on that continuum. My background is a little bit of engineering, a little bit of art, a little animation, all of those sort of glued together. While I have written code, I write code because I'm lazy. If I find myself doing the same thing more than three times in a row, I'm going to find a way to automate it. So I find myself in a position where I will make something that's functional, but from a code standpoint, it's absolutely hideous. Like not designed code, if you want to look at it that way. That's when hopefully either it's good enough for me and I'm done, or I hand it off to somebody who's actually competent, who can do nice little elegant things to it, make it maintainable, that sort of thing. So this is a weird question. The only way it came to my head is that's a metaphor. So a calligrapher has to paint the same character many, many times in order to become good at calligraphy. Whereas if you automate that away, you've just destroyed the entire art. 
And I feel like design is often this process where you have to do the same thing repetitively in order to get good at it. So how do you square away automating away things in the process while also enabling the creative juices to flow? There's a parallel there because I look at my sort of core mentality is that of an animator. And anybody who's done any animation knows that it is a time-consuming, tedious, heart-wrenching task of monotony and repetition. And it's all necessary because that moment that you see something sort of spring to life and dance and do whatever it does, it makes it all worth it. And if it doesn't, you shouldn't be animating. Design is very much the same sort of way. That said, there are things around the monotony that are more monotonous, especially when you start involving technology. Things need to be named the right thing, or you have processes and procedures to, I did the animation, now I'm trying to render this out and have all of my frames in order, or I want to have the other frame rendered, or I want to do something like that. Those are the sort of things that they don't necessarily contribute to the art and act of animating or the art and act of design in this case. They're not contributing to it, and they're actually distracting from what I'm actually supposed to be doing. So that calligrapher Yes, they could be spending their time working on strokes or getting the curves right. But if you're actually trying to use the text to make signage, you're going to design a font. So from what I hear you saying there is that by the development of proper infrastructure, the focus can be shifted away from all of the different things that support the work that you're trying to do. And it allows you to focus more on the fulfilling aspects of actually creating art design products as opposed to thinking about everything else. Exactly. I mean, it's the same reason that you have, we'll say high level creatives, actors or whatever, they hire personal assistants to handle a bunch of other things so that they can focus on their art or focus on whatever the thing that they're actually good at. You see this also in the corporate world. They're hiring people to do things so that they can focus on what they're actually really good at. And I can't hire people for all the things I like to do. So therefore I'm making robots to do it. I like this a lot. And it's really making me wonder about the open source community, because I feel like for animators, it's something you want to do. And it's very clear what you want to do. But I feel like a lot of people who are in open source just want to tinker with something. They want to tinker, want to tinker, want to tinker. And it's just kind of interesting to me that you identify as someone who codes, because for me, coders are really inefficient people because they've decided to focus in on this tiny thing that wasn't necessary for them to do and then go on and go about doing it. I'm trying to phrase this into a question. It's more of these one of horrible shower realizations, even though I'm not in a shower right now, listeners. And maybe the best way for me to think about it is you're in a van. When do you have the time to do monotonous stuff? I mean, doesn't life get in the way? How do you decide where the monotony ends and where like the art begins? So on some level, I have forgotten how to be bored, right? So I recognize sort of monotonous repetition. I describe a lot of things in terms of taste. And if it just tastes weird to do, it's a weird sensation kind of thing, I guess. But if it tastes weird to do or tastes annoying to do, or I don't like the flavor of that behavior, then that's something that I want to automate away. That's something that is not contributing to whatever it is I'm doing. I mean, I can find a way to have fun washing dishes, but this goes back to another common design thing, especially when it comes to software. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And that's sort of in that realm. But I also think that while coding can get you absolutely rabbit hole, so can any other creative endeavor. Tell me you haven't worked on something and focused and myopia on a portion of something without seeing the whole big picture of it because you need that one thing to be just right. And you'll spend an hour, two hours, a four days working on just this one thing that largely is insignificant to anybody but you. Coders are just like that too, but it's not like coders are any different from any other creative in that regard. 
So it sounds to me like you're pretty good handle on the difference between, well, similarities between coders and creatives and designers. Tell me about how open source work has been necessary to your work in general. I know that right now you're working with Orange Turban. You're helping to integrate Blender into larger production or like pipelines. And that sounds to me like a customer facing job where you're trying to basically figure that out and make this work. Why is open source essential for that? Why is it necessary that Blender be open source as opposed to just helping larger clients figure out how to use the Adobe suite? Hey, oh, there's so much there. For me, it starts with open source. I got into open source because that's where I started. And I also like doing creative things and I like making things and I didn't want to sacrifice the advantages that I have with open source. And those are the things that really answers the question of, I don't want to be locked into a particular piece of software. I don't want to be hamstrung in terms of interoperability with other people. I want to own my own work. I want to have control over my own tools. These are sort of things that I find essential. I also do traditional work, right? And the notion of I couldn't go out and make my own paint. I couldn't go out and find a piece of wood and carve on it. That seems so alien to me. Why would I apply that same logic to digital tools just because on some level, maybe I don't fully understand how it all works under the hood, which is part of the reason why I actually like enjoying code because the more I understand about how things work under the hood, the more I can abuse it in ways that probably shouldn't have been designed to be used for. Which, yeah, I know design podcasts, I'm talking intentionally about breaking design, but you know, that's what artists do, right? But that sort of is the whole thing. And where in the IT industry sort of open source really took hold because of those kinds of advantages. People wanted to have that interoperability. People wanted to be able to scale up without having to ask questions about licensing or those sort of things specifically in animation and visual effects, but you also see it in manufacturing and a bunch of other things you wouldn't necessarily think about using creative software. And those places have the same problems. And they're just now also sort of coming into that realization and seeing the advantages of not being locked in. And thank you to companies like Adobe and Autodesk for making them realize that by giving them these really difficult subscription models that lock them out when they haven't paid their dues. So because of that realization, because especially when it comes to scaling up and those sort of things, there's a lot of interest in that. And then Blender itself has had, as its development has grown over the years and its popularity has gotten bigger and it hasn't slowed down actually. So people have gotten more and more excited and more and more interested in it. And so they're looking at ways to, well, can I just use it for modeling? Can I just use it for animation? Can I just use it for compositing? Or I'm in the manufacturing realm and I don't need to do a full 3D animation pipeline, but I just need the model. Well, then I don't need to buy a whole suite. I just need this one tool. I need to fit it in with my other esoteric tools that I have. Just to follow up on Richard's question, the open source tools that you use for this creative development, is it just Blender or you have other tools that, you know, you've touched and you've tried? Because I only know Figma, so I just want to know. Which creative field do you want to play in? I mean, from the 3D modeling and animation side, Blender's obviously a Swiss Army chainsaw. It does just about everything with respect to computer graphics. But for 2D stuff in like digital painting, Krita is really nice to go. Though I kind of like my paint for just sort of getting in and just monkeying around with brushes. The interface is a little bit thinner, but it gives you a very natural sort of drawing environment. Inkscape for vector drawing is sort of the go-to for it. A lot of people who sort of grew up with sort of the Illustrator set of tools maybe don't like the interface of it. For me, I, I've always found Inkscape to be a little bit nicer, whereas Illustrator, I feel like I'm working with socks on my hands. So there's that. I mean, even down to things like, see, I'm talking a lot about visual arts, but if you talk about audio, you have digital audio workstations like Ardor. You have Audacity, depending on whatever's happening with its telemetry code that they're adding into it. There is 
renderers a go-go if you're talking about getting things from 3D and out. There's a bunch of different rendering engines you can work with. On the writing side, I mean, you do have word processors like LibreOffice, but you do have a number of other cool little tools that are really have been sort of sprouting up for doing writing-related work. And then I'm still looking for a really, really good mind mapping tool. There's a few that I use, but none of them have quite really nailed it the way that I want it to. But yeah, that's the briefest of surveys for you. (laughs) When you find a new mind mapping tool, let me know, because I've also been on a serious hunt for it. And nothing has beat good old fashioned, losable, misplaceable notepads, which I find months later and go, that was what I was thinking about. If you had to, and this is a done a lot of this already, but if you had to pitch to designers who haven't been, or creatives in general, who haven't been using open source programs before and don't really have much experience breaking out of the closed source ecosystem that a lot of us wind up in from education, what's a good first step? How would you advise to begin that process? When doing any kind of training or even learning, for me, and I find that this works a lot for creatives in general, have a project. Start with something small. If I want to make an icon of some sort, don't put up Inkscape and figure out the tools to make that icon. And then that's going to lead you down a rabbit hole of tutorials and videos and a bunch of things that aren't related, but will probably inform your decision in your practice. But same with 3D. This is the trap people get into on the 3D side is they either want to do the whole pipeline and then get stuck at the beginning. So you'll see a lot of people who want to make an animation, but they get focused on modeling and never actually break out of modeling because there's so much stuff to do in there. Whereas if you want to focus on the actual animation part, get pre-built assets and make those assets do what you want. And there are tons of libraries, depending on what field you're going to be in. If you're working in audio, there are tons of audio samples you can grab and put into like Ardor and really do stuff with. If you're talking about vector graphics, Creative Commons actually has a whole library of stuff that you can pull on and play with. Tons of people have contributed to. Likewise, with 3D assets, it's really sort of knowing where you want to start and then pushing forward from there, but always in the context of a project that is small and you know it's small. Don't assume that it's small because sometimes I just want to do this. And just this ends up being, for a professional person, would be like a six-year project. That's great, Jason. Thank you. Follow-up question to that then would be, we use the phrase evangelist a lot in open source. But if you want to speak with creatives using a closed source ecosystem, I was talking to someone a couple of days ago who said, well, when I hear the word open source, maybe you can change my mind on this. But when I hear the word open source, what I really hear is the phrase no money. So what do you say to that? What do you say to a creative who's very closed to the idea of open? I think this is a realm where anybody who's doing that leads by example. You show up and you be awesome. And then when someone asks you what you did it with, that's when you drop the bomb. I love that. That is an awesome way of making it work. However, it's dependent upon you being awesome and dependent upon the tool of being able to show up for that work, which often depends upon the community having been awesome before and able to get money in order to fund the project that was an open source thing. And so there's no money in open source still kind of applies. I guess a larger question for me is given your length of time in the ecosystem, since the 90s, apparently, which is actually not that long ago. So that, that's okay. That's cool. What do you think is the most effective way for, or that you've noticed, or that comes to mind immediately for the open source tooling that you've worked on in order to gain money? How do you feel like those things sustain themselves? You mentioned Blender going out and getting 100,000 euro within like seven weeks. 
which seems pretty amazing given the time that that happened for an open source project. But like back at that time in the dot com bubble, like imagine money going towards the open source thing and be like, what? So I guess I'm curious, how does you sustain the whole community behind the stuff that you're using? It's great to say use open source and then make money yourself and go on about your day. That's easy. We can all do that. But that seems to be a kind of capitalist extractive model. So I'm curious about how do you help out the communities for the tools that you're using to go and get your money as an independent designer slash worker? It's a tough nut to crack. And there's a couple of different ways. And I dare say that the Blender community has actually shown a lot of the way to that. And they weren't the first ones, but they've done it very well. For instance, an ecosystem around education and additional tools, right? No tool is going to be able to do everything for everyone all the time. And they shouldn't be designed to do so because that would make them these giant behemoths of craziness. You want to be able to drill it down. So if you want to have Blender do, I don't know, something like digital publishing, which is weird, but you can do that. There are add-ons and extensions that you can enable for your workflow to do that. And some of those are commercial. And this is actually a model that was proven out from the WordPress ecosystem. WordPress is open source. WordPress is available everywhere, but they've got a very vibrant commercial ecosystem for people to make money in that. Likewise, the Blender environment has that as well. Little disclaimer here, Orange Turbine is part of CG Cookie. CG Cookie also owns Blender Market. Blender Market is a marketplace for selling assets, resources, and add-ons and extensions for Blender. And two parts to that. One, that means that people can build a career and have around assets and add-ons for Blender, but also at least when it comes to the Blender market, they actually have a system built up where that money gets contributed back to the Blender Foundation to help fund development. As an independent, that's one way to do it, right? If you're just a person doing stuff, that's one way to work your way into that. But there's another way, and it's something that that model has proven out very well on the IT side of things. And I'm hopeful to see it being adopted more on the creative side. And that is really getting creative institutions, companies, studios, whatever, to actually not contribute money. Money helps, but really it's manpower. You know, a 3D studio, for instance, has technical people, has people who are capable of doing code and development. There's no reason why they can't make changes and push them upstream. And that is a workflow that has worked very well on the operating system side of things. How many different companies are writing code for the Linux kernel that are being shipped back upstream and everyone benefits from that? This is the same sort of model that can work for the applications with Blender, Krita, all these creative applications that are vital to studios and whatnot. And you're seeing them do that a little bit. They're usually doing more of that on the library side. There's the ASWF, which is the Academy Software Foundation. Academy as in the Film Academy. They actually have a software foundation that's focused specifically on open source tools that are useful in animation and visual effects. And they sponsor a bunch of these projects that are useful across multiple different studios. You know, the studios have people on staff that will do code and, and help maintain those tools. They do that predominantly on the library level because that's where a lot of your tool makers are going to be thinking a lot. But there's no reason it couldn't happen at the application user facing side of stuff. So it sounds like you talk to companies as part of your job, right, to help them put Blender into their pipeline. I wonder, do you have a lot of like conversations with those companies saying, by the way, you should probably contribute manpower back into Blender as well as part of this process? To a degree. I mean, I've only been doing this for a year and a half, two years now, I guess. And I've actually found, interestingly enough, a lot of my conversations have been happening with toolmakers just as much as with the studios that actually use the tools because they're interested in operability. One of the fun things I like to talk about is about a year ago, I did a workshop for Adobe. 
teaching staff how to use Blender. Because while Adobe has some very talented 3D modelers and 3D animators on staff, they're all trained in Maya. 90% of Adobe's customers, they're using Blender. And so they need to know how to support those customers. So getting them an education on how Blender works and how that thing allows them to support their customers better, not just in answering support questions, but also ultimately an interoperability with file formats that they can talk back and forth and those sort of things. It's one of those realizations that I didn't know when I started doing the consulting side of things that is like, oh yeah, duh, that totally makes sense. But we're starting to see more of the studios have an interest in that because a lot of the times you'll have TDs, technical directors, they have skill with some kind of code. Oftentimes it's scripting related. They've never done something that requires compiling, but it's not something they couldn't pick up. One of the things that I did with a colleague of mine at the most recent Blender conference is we actually hosted a get involved with Blender development workshop. So how do you go in, do a small change of the code and compile it and make something happen? And the cool thing is that with the people who attended that workshop, most of them were not developers. And by the end of it, I know of at least three different people who are actively working on patches, getting that pushed upstream into Blender by the end of that, which is super exciting. This is super, super cool. I love the scope of the rest of the community and how that's happening. It's really cool to learn that Adobe hired you to do that. That makes a lot of sense for me. When I think of animation, I often think of game studios who are notoriously close sorts who don't like sharing stuff at all. Thoughts? You do see a bit of that. So game studios will often segregate. You have their engine, yeah. and then you have the DCC, the digital content creation side. And there's a gap between those two that they don't talk to each other. One just uses the other. So there is that. But there is an understanding that sharing what goes on underneath the hood does have value. I mean, if you look at what Epic's doing with Unreal, one, they're doing the Epic Mega Grants for a lot of different projects, software and creative together. So there's that part of it. Unreal itself, it is an open source, but you can see the source. So they obviously know that there's value with making that stuff available because being able to see under the hood does give you some intrinsic value. Really, I think what it comes down to is the mistaken belief, mostly mistaken belief, that it's your technology that's your differentiator. Rarely is that actually the case. The technology is the facilitator, but your differentiator is really the talent. It's really the people that are working on those teams. I have some biases, so bear that in mind. But the game industry in general doesn't necessarily respect their talent as much as they probably ought to. That's why you see so much churn there. It's gotten better over the years, but that's what it comes down to is they still think of technology as their differentiator when it's really not. It's the stories and it is the way that technology is wielded to evoke emotions in the people who are playing those games. Sounds like a great shout out to open source communities as places where at least normatively try to honor their talent in open source communities. No one's often getting paid to be there a lot of the time. They're there because they want to be there and because they're interested in it and that they really like this tool and they like the other people helping them make the tool with them. So does that sound accurate to you that like open source communities naturally retain their talent more than say churn just design house? To a degree, I think paychecks do talk, but paychecks aren't anything. Even in the Blender community, you had developers that were high contributors to Blender. They got hired off to work at a proprietary company, and some of them came back and some of them haven't. And it really depends on what value you place where. I mean, everyone's got to eat. That's Maslow's hierarchy of needs. That's kind of high up there. But there's also just being able to be a part of that community and feel like you're involved. And I would say sort of going back to the beginning of this, 
you have a level of ownership, even as a user, but particularly also as a developer, you did that. There's a portfolio piece in there, but there's also the fact that people will come up to you randomly and say, you did that thing. Thank you for doing that thing. And it could be the smallest, most inane thing that you didn't spend any time thinking about, but it's there and it's helpful. But that's a gratifying moment of that. And I'll say that on the creative side of the community as well, the, the sort of the user land side of things, people come for the help, people come for the price, but they stay because they got helped and they stay because they were included and their thoughts were appreciated. Now, it's a two-way street. You can't show up and say, this doesn't work the way that I think it should work. You guys suck. Make a change for me. It's a little antisocial. So it's a two-way street. You can't show up and act like, oh, I'm a professional working in, in the industry for dozens of years, and I've got all this great experience, and you should listen to everything that I'm saying. Yes, you have experience that's worth listening to, but that also means you have an entrenched mindset that also might be adjusting a little bit. So it's, again, it's a two-way street. So I'm curious, looking forward over the next few years, we are running up on time, so the podcast will have to end at some point, and I want to get this in. What are you most excited about in the design community? that's really happening right now? What's getting your engines revving? I think just involvement. And I think on some level, there's growing pains there. There's not many designers understand how version control works. And they really ought to because it's helpful even for creative work. But everything is design, right? Design, it permeates through just about everything we do. But that also gives us a bit of hubris. As a designer, everything that I do, I touch everything that happens. And that gives you sort of an unprecedented power, which is difficult to reconcile with a decentralized means of development and creation. So when you have an open source ecosystem where you can't necessarily dictate you're going to do it that way, you have to reconcile that as a designer that you're not going to have that control. You're going to have to sort of either play the part of marketer for your own ideas and advocate for your own ideas, or you're going to have to do this lovely thing we call compromise. Jason, this has been a fascinating conversation. You tend to talk at like 110 words per minute, which is amazing, which is really interesting and fun, but it also means there's a lot more in there that we haven't gotten to today. And I assume you have a place on the web where people can follow along. So where can I find your blog posts, social media things, animations, films, et cetera, et cetera? So the best place to find me is on my personal website. It's monsterjavagons.com, which yes, is an anagram for my name. It's just easier to spell. I didn't think it was an anagram for the name. My next question was going to be, why Monster Java Guns? So thank you for answering the <laughs> other question I had in my head. That's great. Oh, yeah, cool. MonsterJavaGuns.com. That's awesome. We did have uh, the Brazilian Java man on the Sustain podcast. Not this podcast, another one. So Java seems to be a thing. That's cool. Any final words or thoughts on Sustain and open source design and the confluence of the two before we go on to Spotlight? Just the two words. Play nice. Love it. Thank you so much. All right. Speaking of playing nice, Spotless is part of the show at the very end where we talk about people, things, projects which have helped us out, which are inimitable, inexorable, inevitable, or whatever. Just, we just feel like they need some love. So with that, Django, what is your spotlight today? It's one that I have just recently found out about at the very beginning when you were discussing these things. I looked into my paint. I've been looking for a good open source painting application for my tablet and using it for my own personal creative things and what I wanted to do. And my paint really feels like it fits that bill and does exactly what I'm looking to do and use it for. So thank you for that. That's on you, Jason, and I will be using this. Victory? It was great to say all of the tools. I would say as much as I do design open source, I already use open source design tools 
So it's really exciting to find out all of these tools. And trust me, I'm going to make a long thread of it to like give my advocacy about it. These are really like very nice softwares and I'm really excited about all of them. Cool. Thank you, Victory. My spotlight today is something that actually was also reminded during this podcast, which is how it's supposed to go. Things are mildly relevant. But this tool didn't necessarily help me out. It's not something necessarily like led me to where I am today, but it has over the years given me endless amounts of laughter and joy. So I just want to say thank you to Colin Spare. Colin Spare is the best animation of all time. Nothing could possibly be better than Colin Spare. This was a university student who did an animation class and thought it was totally crap. And in the end, made a video using all the things necessary and got an A, but then put it on the internet as an example of how bad it was. And if you want to have a really awesome experience, just go watch this like 20 second animation from Colin Spare. It's my favorite thing in the world. Thank you, Colin, for existing in everything. Jason, what's your spotlight today? I'm not sure I can follow that up with, but we'll try. My spotlight is the entirety of the Blender community. If it was just the software, wouldn't matter. If it was just other artisans, it wouldn't matter as much. But it's really the whole community, artists and developers, and the stuff that's sprung up around it. I mean, forums and YouTube communities and all of these things. The end of October, I was in a the Blender conference. And if you've never been, it is the huggiest conference you will ever go to. Every year, it's the largest one, but this one had 600, 700 people. And it is like showing up home and everybody there is doing really cool stuff and doing stuff that you wouldn't expect. And one of my favorite things is being able to see that you're using Linux for that, for astrophysics, for rebuilding the faces of macaws. I mean, these are the like crazy wild things and you don't see this as much anywhere else. And really, this community really is, I'm going to talk a lot about it if I have not stopped. So I'm going to stop there. Love the huggiest community as a term. That's a great one. Jason, thank you so much. This has been illuminating. It's really awesome to hear from someone in the industry who's been here for so long and has such great things and doesn't seem to need to change their parameters in their head. You're doing a great job. Thank you so much for talking. This was excellent to share. Listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this. If you have, please let us know. You can send an email to, I believe, SOSD podcast at sustainoss.org. You can go on our Discord, Discord at sustainoss.org. We can talk about things. We have a Slack channel that's pretty active. It's at Open Collective. So openclick.slack.com. You can check that out. There's a designer channel in there. Feel free to come and talk about sustained things, sustained design, and all the rest. If you have any thoughts for Jason, do hit him up. Again, that was monsterjavaguns.com. Please like this podcast wherever you have downloaded slash paid for it. If you paid for it, go return it because this should be free. But please like it. It does help out and tell your friends about it. And if you have any other hosts you want to be on, let them know as well. I'm running out of things to spiel about. So I'm just going to say thank you once more time. Jason, this is great. Take care.